0: Well, welcome back to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show, and we're continuing our deep dive into the doctrine of Scripture today. Uh, Monday, we looked at verbal plenary inspiration, and today we are going to look at inerrancy. And this is really, really important, uh, what we're going to talk about today. It's, uh, it's, it's absolutely vital. It's vital to have a good understanding in the age in which we are living in uh, about what inerrancy is. And for those of you that don't know, uh, my new book is out. It's called The Word Matters, uh, Defending Biblical Authority Against the Spirit of the Age. It's published by G3 Press, and uh, I would encourage you to get this. This is Just a Little Appetite. Um, There's a lot to cover, a lot to say, uh, a lot that I didn't even say in the book. Even though the book is just under 200 pages, there's, I mean, there's just a lot to say about uh, these topics. And so this is one of the reasons why we're doing this uh, deep dive into these things for uh, really the rest of the year. Um, Not only because uh, it's vital to understand but because the Bible really is under attack it's it's under attack and we need to understand what the doctrine of Scripture is and we need to we need to stand on a, We need to stand on the doctrine of Scripture, and we need to not compromise. One important fact about the divine revelation of Scripture is its veracity in in all that it affirms. God's disclosure about himself and the nature of reality are always without error. That's what inerrancy means, without error. Inerrancy applies first to natural revelation. Whatever the Lord says to us about nature is without error. Our interpretation of this revelation is not always without error as the continual revision of scientific hypothesis demonstrates nevertheless what the creator order created order tells us is true whether or not we understand it. Now although God's revelation in nature is no less true than is inscripturated or written revelation that is in his word uh, we are usually thinking of the Bible when we use the term inerrancy Psalm 12:6. It's one of the many biblical texts that affirms uh, biblical inerrancy. The words of the Lord are pure like silver that has been purified so thoroughly that no impurities remain. Unlike the speech of human beings that is filled with lies, the word of God contains no dross. No air is mixed with the truth of God. Biblical inerrancy must be rightly understood. Otherwise, we get into all sorts of problems. Inerrancy applies only to what scripture actually affirms. Not to every statement a biblical character makes. The the focus on the veracity of what scripture actually affirms, it allows us to take into account the use of poetic imagery. Isaiah uh, 55.12, for example, it speaks of trees clapping their hands when God redeems the exiles. Where the Bible were to actually affirm here that trees have hands, the text would not be inerrant. For, you know, trees are handless, right? But all that Isaiah is affirming is that creation itself will rejoice at the salvation of the people of God. And so he's using Isaiah as a metaphor to do so. In fact, we can also say that the the health of local churches and the, the body of Christ, it depends on a firm commitment to, and I'll say it this way, being consistent not only in its conviction about the doctrine of inerrancy, but in the practice, in the practice of the doctrine of inerrancy. And once the the idea that Scripture teaches something false is accepted, we need to ask the question: What other fundamental doctrines of the Christian faith will fall next? But inerrancy must be properly understood, lest we be falsely accused uh, falsely accused others of denying it. We must take care in interpreting the Bible, for while the text is inerrant, our interpretations aren't. You know, because Scripture is the only source of special revelation that we possess, it is the only infallible and final authority for the church. Now, we're going to talk here next week about what infallibility means and what it entails and all of that, so we're not going to get into that in this episode, okay? Just want to be clear with you about that. But what I'm saying is, this is the doctrine of Sola Scriptura, which the Protestant Reformers embraced in order to correct errors. That said, other authorities, such as post-biblical church tradition, are equivalent to Scripture as a rule, as a standard for faith. See, the doctrine of Sola Scriptura is a necessary consequence of passages like we talked about last week, 2 Timothy 3, 16-17, which identifies only Scripture as God-breathed or divinely inspired. And because God is incapable of erring, whatever He inspires is incapable of teaching error. Uh, Like I mentioned, we're going to talk about biblical infallibility, but uh, this means that the Scripture, infallibility means that the Scripture is impossible to err. It has to do with the capability of Scripture, what it can and what it cannot do. But you see, if Scripture is unable to teach falsehood, that has implications for regarding what Scripture actually is. Because the Bible is incapable of teaching error, Scripture is actually free from error. The Word of God does not affirm anything that is false, and so we refer to this doctrine as a doctrine of scriptural or biblical inerrancy. Now, scriptural inerrancy is a good and it's a necessary consequence of biblical infallibility, which, like I mentioned now the third time, we're going to talk about that next week. So, I promise you, we're going to get to biblical infallibility. But it's also explicitly taught by the Bible. In Scripture, we discover that every word of the Lord proves true in Psalm 1830. Commenting on this, John Calvin writes, "...the Word of God is pure." and without any mixture of fraud and deceit like silver, which is well refined and purified from all its dross. Other important passages that demonstrate the inerrancy of scripture are John 17, 17, where Jesus says to his father, your word is true. You see, the word of God is truth. And so when we speak a biblical inerrancy, we're speaking of the original text of scripture, not its manuscript copies. We We don't actually have the actual hard copies that the apostles and the prophets wrote. Instead, we have copies of those, those writings. And since only the apostles and the prophets were inspired, only the text that they wrote is inerrant. Various copies may and, and do contain differences. They contain additional words and other discrepancies between them. But this is not the problem. For the Bible is preserved better than any ancient book, and we are able to reconstruct the, the original text that the apostles and the uh, prophets wrote, even though all we possess is the many, many transcripts from a scribe who copied the Bible. We do not have the original uh, these originals, but we do not need to fear that the scriptures have any heirs, and so we may fully trust these writings. In doing so, we're trusting God himself. In fact... In recent years, uh, a number of semi-conservative theologians have questioned whether we can even hold to biblical inerrancy and biblical infallibility. Uh, they question—after they, they, all, they say this this quest for absolute certainty it reflects a Greek, uh, an Aristotelian mindset that's not ca- uh, compatible with the nature of faith. They say that Christianity is a matter of faith, and we don't need absolute certainty, they argue. And we need to notice immediately that such statements as these, they presuppose that faith is incompatible with certainty. That is, they presuppose, to some degree, the modern existential view of faith, which sees faith as a leap in the dark. And so we can imagine that, that God might have given us information about redemption in another way. He, he might have simply provided us with a lot of human testimonies. The Gospels, for instance, might merely be the, the personal recollections of Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And John, and and no more. In that case, God would be calling us to believe the gospel in the same way we believe that Ronald Reagan was president from 1981 to 1989. Now, there's a debate over what Mr. Reagan actually thought and did during his term, but there's no debate over whether he was actually the president. In the same way, scholars could debate the details recorded in the gospels as having a faith in the general trustworthiness of the accounts. Now, The Bible, though, claims much more than this. In fact, it claims to be the very Word of God. The the Bible in 2 Timothy uh, 3.16 says that God breathed out the Word of God. And so if God is God, He doesn't make mistakes. In fact, if the Bible is breathed out by God, there cannot even be any minor errors in the details of history. If the Bible contains errors, it can hardly be the work of a perfectly holy God. And if God is not perfect and totally trustworthy, then He's not God. If the Bible contains errors, it it might still be correct in many of its claims, but there's one claim that that could not be true. The Bible's claim to be the breathed-out Word of God all the church fathers, all the medieval theologians, the Protestant reformers, they all clearly saw that the Bible claims to be without error and without the possibility of error. I actually prove that claim in my book, The Word Matters. Now, if that claim is false... The Bible is deceiving us and has many, has deceived many people for thousands of years. There, there are actually people out there who think that, you know what, this term inerrancy is a new term. And so, therefore, it's a modern invention of the church to somehow secure the doctrine of Scripture. That is a false charge. It has zero evidence backing up. If you don't have evidence to substantiate, you make the claim. Here's the thing in, in argumentation and, and, and things. If you make a claim, you have to support the claim. If you can't substantiate the claim, then the claim has to be rejected. The problem is, is that people are making all these claims uh, uh, about what the church is supposedly taught and whatnot, but there's no evidence They don't use evidence. You know, if if you go into a court of law, I'm going to go with this for just a minute. If you go into a court of law and you don't have any evidence for the claim that you're making against, you know, uh, the person on trial, guess what? The case gets thrown out. But in our day, instead of the, the argument being thrown out, it is instead popularized, especially when it comes to the Bible, because people do not want to deal with the bible that is why you will hear me say again and again and again it's probably going to become you know like one of those things you're like can you stop saying that because you know you've said it so many times and i've heard you but like the problem is is it needs to be said again and again because what you do with the bible it reveals what you believe about the bible and that's exactly what we see people make claims they make these statements and then they don't back it up with any claims and when you're when you're in school when you're for example in seminary you're required if you go to a conservative bible believing and theologically orthodox seminary like i did you are required to present your biblical argument your best biblical argument that you can possibly muster and you have to support that argument with evidence the problem is in so much of other writing today especially on the the theological liberal side you have people making claims and they have no evidence to support their arguments in school those arguments get you get an f, a big fat f in the court of law that would get thrown out and yet today it's accepted as norm that's uh that should shock us it should and it's also very telling because If you don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God and that it's free from error, you're going to do whatever you can to undermine the Bible and to reinterpret it and to do with it what you want. But see, in the Bible, God, when we come to the Bible, God wants us to have confidence in Him so we can know Him, so we can know His will, so that we can do what we're called to do without fear. Now, Consider your commitment level could it be enhanced by a stronger affirmation of the trustworthiness of scripture. Too many people are asking this question today. You don't really believe the Bible is true, do you? Well, the shock expressed by those who discover someone actually believes the Bible to be without error, it's it's kind of amusing. Inevitably, their next question takes us right back to Genesis, but, but what does a Christian mean by without air," and, and are we really, really sure? Let's talk about, we talked last week about the inspiration of Scripture, but let's go back here. The, the term inspiration is an attempt to translate one word that occurs only once in the New Testament. The term is found in 2 Timothy 3.16, and the Greek is Theoponoustos. This term is made from two words, one being a word for God, Theos, as in theology, and the other referring to breath or wind, panoustos, as in pneuma and pneumatic. It's significant that the word in 2 Timothy 3.16 is passive. In other words, God did not breathe into, inspire all scripture, but it was breathed out by God, expired. And so 2 Timothy 3.16 is not about how the Bible came to us. It's about where it came from. The scriptures are God-breathed. To know how the Bible came to us, we can turn to 2 Timothy 1.21, where we discover that holy, the holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. The Greek word used here is pharaoh, which means to bear or to carry. It's a familiar word that Luke used of a sailing ship carried along by the wind in Acts 27. The human writers of the Bible certainly used their minds, but the Holy Spirit carried them along in their thinking so only only God, His God-breathed words were recorded. The Apostle Paul set the matter plainly in 1 Corinthians 2.13. These things we also speak, not in words which wisdom teaches, but by which the Holy Spirit teaches. And so the, the word inspiration is so embedded in our Christian language that we're going to continue to use it, even though we might not know what it means. God breathed out, by, breathed out His Word, and the Holy Spirit guided the writers. In fact, the Bible has one author uh, and many around about 40 writers. The Holy Spirit moved men to write. He allowed them to use their own, their own personality, their own talents, their own abilities, their, their own voice, their own way of phrasing things. But And he allowed them to use the results of their study, their research, the, the writing of their own experience and express what all, what's on their mind. At the same time, though, the Holy Spirit did not allow error to influence their writing. He overruled in the expression of thought and in the choice of words. And thus they recorded accurately all that God wanted them to say and how He wanted them to say it in their own character, their own style. And their own language. And so the, the inspiration of Scripture is a harmony of the active mind of the writer and the sovereign direction of the Holy Spirit to produce Gods without error and without possibility of error, word of God for humanity. Now we need to avoid two errors here. First, some think inspiration is nothing more than a generally heightened sensitivity to wisdom on the part of the writer, just as we talk of an inspired idea or an invention. Second, some believe that the writer was merely a mechanical dict- dictation machine writing out the words he heard from God. Both errors failed to adequately account for the active role played by the, by the Holy Spirit and the, the human writer. So, if inspiration really means God-breathed, then the claim of 2 Timothy 3.16 is that all scripture being God-breathed is without error and therefore can be trusted entirely. It says God cannot lie, Hebrews 6.18, He would cease to be God if He breathed out errors and contradictions, even in the smallest part. So, as long as we give theopneustis its real meaning, we should not find it hard to affirm full inerrancy or without error nature of the Bible. That is, that plenary and verbal inspiration means the Bible is God-given in every part and in every single word. So, we often use, theologians do, fancy words, uh, plenary and inspirational, verbal, uh, plenary, verbal, inspiration. We talked about this last week, I believe. But plenary comes from the Latin plenus, which means full, and it refers to the fact that the whole of Scripture in every part is God-given. Uh, verbal comes from the Latin verbum, which means word. It emphasizes that even the words of Scripture are God-given. And so Plenary and verbal inspiration means that the Bible is God-given, it's therefore without error, and in every part, in doctrine, in history, in geography, in dates, and names, in every single word. And so as we talk about inerrancy, we refer to the original writing of Scripture. We, we don't have any of the original autographs, as they're called, but only copies, including many copies of each book. But there are small differences here and there, but in reality, they're amazingly similar. Uh, one 18th century New Testament scholar claimed that not one thousandth part of the text was affected by these differences. That's pretty amazing. Inerrancy does not mean it's incorrect to claim that the Bible is only reasonable, ad- adequate, and, uh, reasonably accurate as some do. Uh, that would leave us uncertain whether we could trust God. We could only then, in that view, trust God uh, in some areas of Scripture and not in all of it. Well, that, that doesn't work. So we need to ask the question: is it true as John Goldney uh stated that that this view of inerrancy that we're talking about is not directly asserted by Christ or within Scripture itself? Well, this is a it's a very large uh discussion uh that that we could have here uh on this particular question. But it, it's it's important to say a few things. Deuteronomy 18, 18 says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brethren and will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command. Jeremiah 1, 9 says this, then the Lord put forth his hand and touched my mouth. And the Lord said to me, behold, I put my words in his mouth. So the Hebrew for prophet means a spokesman. The prophet's message was on God's behalf. That means that he spoke for God. Isaiah 5 reveals this clearly. In verses 1 through 2, the prophet speaks for God in the third person, he, but in verses 3 through 6, Isaiah changes to speak in the first person, I. Isaiah was speaking the very words of God. And so, no wonder David could speak the word of the Lord as flawless. Peter and John saw the words of David in Psalm 2, not merely as the opinion of the King of Israel, but as the voice of God. This is why they said in Acts 4:25, quoting Psalm 2, "Why did the nations rage and the people plot in vain? Paul accepted Isaiah's words as God himself speaking to men in Acts 28:25. Uh, it says this, "The Holy Spirit spoke rightly through Isaiah the prophet, uh, to our forefathers now uh, some people say well but Jesus Jesus didn't believe in verbal inspiration well in John 1034 Jesus quoted from psalm 82 6 and based upon his teaching upon a phrase I said you are gods in other words Jesus proclaimed that the words of the psalm were the very words of God he did this over and over and over again uh, matthew 22 31 through 32. He claimed the words of Exodus three six were given to them by God. Uh, in Matthew twenty two forty three through forty four, the Lord, our Lord Jesus, quoted from Psalm one ten and pointed out that David wrote these words in the spirit, meaning these were the very writings of the Word of God. Paul, Paul did this over and over and over again. Uh, uh, for example, uh, Galatians three sixteen. He says, he does not say, and his seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who is Christ. Paul's quoting here from Genesis twelve seven, 7, uh, Genesis 3, 15, and Genesis 24, 7. So, these, Paul's argument here is that God was not primarily referring to Israel as the offspring of Abraham, but of Christ. So, so Jesus, Paul, the Apostles they all believed in verbal inspiration. That is why they utilized the word of God. So to say that the Bible is the word of God and is therefore without error, because the Bible itself makes this claim, is seen by many as circular reasoning. Well, you're just arguing this and it just takes you around in a loop and a loop and a loop. It's rather like saying that prisoner must be innocent because he says he is. Do we believe it? Where's the evidence? And so we need to ask the question, are we justified in appealing to the Bible's own claim in settling this matter of its authority and its inerrancy? Well, we can say this, that since the Bible is God's word, we must listen to its own claims about itself. Or we can say it this way, as I often do, the Bible is its own best apologetic or defense. So we must go to the Bible to understand what God has to say. In John 5, 31 through 32, Jesus said that the self-witness is normally insufficient. And yet Jesus claimed in John 8:12, I am the light of the world. The Pharisees attempted to correct him by saying in verse 13 of John 8: Here you are, appearing as your own witness, your testimony is not valid. In defense, the Lord showed him that in his case, because he's a son of God, self-witness is reliable. John 8, 14 says, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. And so self-witness is reliable where sin does not interfere, because Jesus is God, he's guiltless. His words then can be trusted. In a similar manner, since the Bible is God's word, we must listen and understand its own claims about itself. In fact, we need to say this too. Much of the Bible's story is such that unless God revealed it, we would never know it. Uh, Many scientific theories uh, propose how the, the world came into being. Some of these theories differ only slightly from each other. Uh, but others are contradict each other and this shows that no one can really be sure about such matters because no scientist was there when it all happened unless the god who who was there has revealed it we could not know for certain the same is true for all the great bible doctrines how can we be sure that of god's anger against sin his love for sinners his plan to choose a people for himself unless god himself told us Hillary of appointers the fourth century theologian once claimed only God is a fit witness for himself. No one, no one can improve upon that statement. Well, the belief that the Bible is without error is not new. Here's some evidence. Clement of Rome in the first century wrote, look carefully into the scriptures, which are the true utterances of the Holy Spirit. Observe that nothing of an unjust or counterfeit character is written in them. A century later, Irenaeus concluded the scriptures are indeed perfect since they were written, or excuse me, he says, were spoken by the word of God and his spirit. This was a view of the early church. It's been the consistent view of evangelicals from the ancient Vadas, people of the Piedmont Valley, to the 16th century Protestant reformers across Europe and up to the present day. Not all use terms such as infallibility or inerrancy, but many express the concepts. There's no doubt that they believed it. It's liberalism that's taken this new approach. Professor Kirsop lake at Harvard University admits, it is we the liberals who have departed from tradition. So we need to ask the question, is the debate about whether the Bible can be trusted merely a theological quibble? Is it, is it a, a, maybe a secondary or even a third-order issue? Well, no, it's not. The question of ultimate authority is critical for us as Christians. So if the Scripture is unreliable, can we offer the world a reliable gospel? How can we be sure of the truth of anything or or, or even be suspicious of errors anywhere, even in the Bible? You know, a pilot will uh, ground his aircraft even on some uh, suspicion of even a minor fault because He's aware that even one minor issue can affect the airplane. And so if history contained in the Bible is wrong, how can we be sure that the moral or even the doctrinal teaching of Scripture is correct? We need to understand that the heart of Christian, the the Christian message is history. Jesus came in real time and real history in the Incarnation. which was demonstrated by the virgin birth of Christ. Redemption, the price paid for our rebellion, was obtained by the death of Christ on the cross. Reconciliation, the privilege of the sinner becoming a friend of God, was gained through the resurrection and the ascension of Christ. so if these recorded events are not true, how can we know the theology behind them is true? You see, we cannot have a reliable and trustworthy Savior without a reliable Scripture, you know, if, if, as some suggest, the stories in the Gospels are not historically true and the record or recorded words of Christ are only occasionally His, we, we need to ask, uh, how can we know and trust Christ? Must we rely on the conflicting interpretations of a host of supposed critical liberal scholars before we know who Christ is and what He's like? And, it, and, and even further, if, if the Gospel stories are merely the result of wishful thinking of the Church in the second and the third centuries, or even the personal views of the gospel writers, then our faith no longer rests upon Jesus, but upon the opinions of men. We need to understand that. Who would trust an unreliable Savior for their salvation? If we believe the Bible contains errors, then then we'll be quick to accept scientific theories that counter this. And we see this all, all the time, all the time. People that are supposedly academics who adhere to academic standards they don't adhere to the same standards in their own discipline as they do when when, when they come to the Bible. Instead, they they come to the Bible to prove their own presupposition. You see, when we doubt the Bible's inerrancy, we have to invent new principles, another analytical tool to place it over the Bible. And this means people must ask how reliable a given passage is when they they turn to it. Only then are they going to decide what to make of it on the other hand, if we believe in inerrancy, we will test Scripture uh, by the hasty theories that often come to us in the name of science. In fact, the denial of biblical inerrancy often leads to a loss of confidence in the pulpit. You see, how we understand the doctrine of Scripture matters because it affects how we're going to preach the Bible. Are we going to interpret the Bible as a, for what it says and what it means? And this will affect how you Uh, preached, because if you don't believe that the text is without error and that it's inspired by God, then why would you preach it as such? You know, And this is the problem. But when we believe the Bible is true and that it contains the very words of God, we're going to preach every word uh, and every sentence, every paragraph, all of it, and from every book in the Bible. We're going to preach expository sermons because this view shows a confidence and a trustworthiness and a reliable Clear, uh, binding, and 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 sufficient uh, word of God and infallible word as well. But like the point is, is that our view of Scripture is going to impact how we do life and how we how we do uh, ministry. In fact, even in the past few years, we've we've seen a lot of people suggest that you know. That the by the, this whole word the, in the Oxford Dictionary a few years ago was post truth, and so there's no way to to know truth. But see, as I said in the last episode, if you haven't listened to that, I want to encourage you to do that because uh, I won't rehash the argument. But the the thing is, if if truth is post truth, then then why do we even have dictionaries? Uh, why even do we even have dictionaries like the Oxford Dictionary? It, it makes you go what. If there's such a thing as post-truth, then then we can't know for certain that words have meaning, and if yeah. words have no meaning, then we have no need, right, for dictionaries because they tell us what the words mean. But this is exactly the the ludicrous approach that is too often taken. Uh, to, to people who don't believe the Bible from science and gender and sexuality and and other things, they come to the Bible to question, to ridicule, to critically examine uh, the Scripture without believing that it's from God. And the that really matters what I just said because the, the we call this the hermeneutics of suspicion, suspicion, that the Bible doesn't really mean what it means, and so I need to come with suspicion and treat it with suspicion. But the the thing is, is as Titus 1, 2 very clearly tells us, that God never lies. That means that that we can come to the Bible to learn about who God is and what he's like. And we can we can we can yes, we can take the most the strongest approach to the Bible. We can examine what the words mean and and dive into it. This is why this is why even a child can understand what the scriptures say. And and even the, the greatest minds in the, in the history of the world, they cannot pull on the depths of the scripture. Because the depths go as deep as God Himself. And then God, even if we get to those depths, De- uh, Deuteronomy 29, 29 tells us that God has withhold so, so there's only so far that we can go because, well, the Bible also tells us that we have finite minds. And so we can only understand so much, and God has chosen in His, in, in His sovereign will to keep things uh, f- that we would not understand out of the Bible. But that doesn't mean that that what the Scripture has revealed isn't enough. God has a revealed will, and he's expressed that that will, that plan about who we are and what we are, uh, you know, our gender that he is assigned. If you're a man, you're a man, and if you're a woman, you're a woman. He's taught us about marriage between one man and one woman for life. He tells us what the gospel message is from Genesis to Revelation and to everywhere in between. He tells us what the Bible is again and again and again. Uh, the what the purpose of the Scripture is. He tells us about the Trinity and on and on and on we could go. So the Bible is enough. Uh, it, it it's verbally inspired. It's God breathed down to the very words. So there's nothing in this Scripture that that's not true when properly understood. Even when written by men with the limited and even erroneous views of the world. We're not just speaking of the main points here, but even the minor details. You see, God is powerful enough to keep the Bible writers from crossing over the line from true to the false. And since everything in Scripture really is the Word of God, then that is what He did. He kept them from even claiming or teaching anything contrary to the way things really are. And we need to understand just one more thing. Just one more thing as I wrap up this episode. Make no mistake about it. As I mentioned earlier, this this hermeneutic of suspicion, dear friends, it is out there. In some ways, it's there to stay because it shapes at the idea that the Bible has definitive things to tell us, that the Bible tells us this is what a man is. He's made in the image of God, and he's a man. And that gender is assigned by God at the moment of birth. That means that changing your gender is an act of rebellion against God. The, the world, oh my, the world chafes at that idea. And we're going to talk about that, you know, uh, down the road here, uh, because we have seen, we see this explosion uh, of rebellion against God. and it And it really is sad, because the Bible does have something to say about it. God specifically assigns a gender. He assigns a man to be a man and a woman to be a woman. He created marriage to be between one man and one woman for life. He he even designed man to be the leader in the home. And then and then the the Paul uh in 1st Timothy 3 and Titus 1 for example, he uses the argument from the doctrine of creation in those texts in 1st Timothy 3 and Titus 1 to Explicitly made clear why a man is only to lead in the church, and and these this is just one one example. What you believe about the Bible will affect what you do with the Bible. That is that is what you believe about the Bible itself will influence how you interpret the Bible. That's what I mean. See what we believe really matters because it. If, if we wrongly interpret the Bible that that shows that we don't believe the Bible. It shows what we think about what God has, has spoken. I don't know how else to say this other than to say that the very people who want you to not believe what the Bible says, these are the same people who come to the Bible to cast doubt on the, on the te- but especially about the, the Bible's teaching about gender, about sexuality, about who man is and who a woman is as created and designed by God, especially, but also about about the Bible itself. They, they attack the authority of the Bible. But here's the thing, ultimately, that this reveals, okay? Just one last thought and we'll wrap up. The authority of God's word is grounded in who God is. God created us in his image and likeness, right? And so we are deserving of dignity, value, and worth because God created us. He also knows the length of our days, the hairs on our head. He knows everything about us through and through. Okay, that means that we are owned by virtue of the fact that God created us. If you're a Christian, you're doubly owned by virtue of Him, by virtue of the Lord Jesus being your Lord and Savior. If you're a if you're a Christian, then you have no other truth other than what God has said. You're, it's not your truth; it's God's truth. And furthermore, that means that all truth is God's truth, which means that if we rebel against God, we're saying, God, you aren't really God. This is where Romans 1 goes. This is where the depravity of man is revealed. We we say to the Creator, you know what, God, you didn't really make me. And so you don't really get to set the expectation. You don't really get to set the standard. You don't get to tell me what to do because... I am my own authority. But think about that. Here's the one who made us. He's the one who fashioned us. He's the one who gives us life and breath. He's the one who sustains the world so that we can breathe. By, by the way, even the breath that you're you're taking into your lungs right now is a gift from God who knows you that well, and he also knows the length of your days. And this is so important when dealing with the hermeneutic of suspicion because we need to under people need to understand what they're saying and they need to understand who they're speaking about now they may not believe us now and we know that the bible also says that that the god of this this world blinds our eyes and i'm not saying that we continue to 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 hammer this point home but but we need to we need to show people the illogical we need to hold up The logic of their arguments is what I'm saying. And say, you know what? This is actually, I want you to see this. This is actually what you're saying. And this is what this actually means. Do do you actually believe that? And I want you to think about it. Do Do you understand you believe in logic? Do you understand that your logic takes you this direction? It doesn't take you to the place that you want it. Your logic takes you completely away from truth. Which, by the way, it's interesting. Everybody believes in truth. Everybody is searching for truth. Isn't it interesting because Ecclesiastes 3.11 tells us that God set eternity on our heart. God hardwired us as human beings to seek after truth. And so the denial uh, and the word post-truth is an ultimate contradiction. It, it replaces meaning with the self. So self determines the meaning. But how can the self, we need to ask, how can the self determine anything? If there's no foundation, if there's no standard, if there's no standard? That's really what we're dealing with today, friends. That's that's why the Bible is under attack. Because man wants to be authoritative. They want to be the standard for truth. But we're not the creator. The one who creates is the one who sets the terms. He sets the expectations. He sets the guidelines. And we are owned by him. And if you're a Christian, you're doubly owned. By the Lord. And that means you're doubly accountable. So, friends, wrapping up, let's be faithful to the scriptures. God has clearly and definitively spoken, and we can trust the Bible. We can trust it. We can take it to the bank. We can deal with hard questions against the Bible with the Bible itself. It is not a self contradiction, and that is not a circular argument. The Bible is its own standard. It is objective truth. It is given by a God who never lies, whose ways are perfect, holy, just, and good. I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of Equipping You in Grace. Until next Monday and Wednesday, may God bless you and keep you. Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins.